you just mentioned something. Let's tie in that because you you mentioned something as we were getting ready to start this call. But um, there is somebody who is in a position of leadership now that was the oil minister and was dealing directly with Iran that a lot of people would recognize him as a pain in the ass right now and a world leader. <laughs> well, I, I recognize him as indicted, but <laughs> 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 shout out to my old group who's holding the uh, the papers. But uh, it sounds to me like you're um, referring to Nicolas Maduro, <sighs> the current president of Venezuela. And who would have thought Venezuela, an oil-rich country, is uh, you know antagonistic towards the United States, would be involved in anything like this? Well, I, I think more I'm ironically, shocked. it all brings us back to our religious, re- initial conversation on prisoner releases, because our fine administration was kind enough to release uh, Maduro's stepsons, known as the Narco Sobrinos, last year after only serving a couple years of their sentence on a on a major operation my group ran um, in Central America. They were trying to move six or 700 kilos up to Central America. We caught them in a sting, captured them in Haiti, flew them here, and um, we just decided to release them. So, How many years were they serving? In, in, how many years they served to? How many should they have been serving? Uh, served more than two. I think they served a ballpark of five out of Many, 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 many more than five. (laughs) I'd have to look up the actual sentence. I try not to wallow on it too much, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, getting back to Maduro, back in, uh, again, same time period, 2007, um, we later ended up with first person human intelligence on a former, uh, from a former Venezuelan um, high level official, we'll just say, uh, that in 2007, uh, and we could talk about this because it's been open sourced that, you know, the person himself, I don't won't use his name or his title, but he uh, he'd given his own story before. And um, he was uh, instructed that he be going over to some meetings and I, I believe in Iran um, on oil business uh, with Maduro, who at the time held. I don't know if it was actually oil. I don't think it was actually oil ministers. It was a weird title, maybe oil ambassador to the Middle East, but but definitely involved in oil. And you have to understand, in Venezuela, um, PDVSA is the Venezuelan state oil company. It's In my view, I've said this many times before, I've said it in court, it's the world's largest money laundering machine. Um, that's, the, that's the center of all corruption in Venezuela. And so we mentioned Trek Alasami before. Trek was vice president of Venezuela. You would think that's... If he never made it to president, you would think that's the highest position he ever held. Well, no, because he was at one point until last year, until he got sideways with his own regime down there, he was uh, head of PDVSA, president of PDVSA, which is probably the most powerful position one can hold in Venezuela, certainly the most lucrative to line your own pockets. So going back to 2007, um, this friend, we'll call him, is, is heading overseas, and he's to meet Maduro in Damascus, Syria, for further travel onto the Middle East, and uh, they meet. Uh, they get, the friend gets to Damascus. He gets picked up by a couple of uniformed uh, military folks who give him an escort to a hotel, and he gets brought into a meeting a few minutes too early, meaning he wasn't supposed to be part of this meeting. And he witnessed um, someone whom he described as looking like Hassan Nasrallah who's the spiritual leader of Hezbollah, it almost certainly couldn't have been him. 
Um, but this person meeting with Nicolas Maduro and offering to teach Hezbollah's brand of resistance to Venezuela, offering to help them set up militias to fight the infidels, to fight their common enemy, the United States. Uh, in hindsight, uh, Jack Kelly and I, Jack is the DEA agent who ran Cassandra, probably one of the foremost experts, at least at that time on, on Hezbollah. I mean, he, he just, he, he, the, he knows everything. He, at the time, he knew who all the major players were. We're, we're pretty certain that the person uh, that Maduro was meeting with was Imad Magnia. Imad Magnia was Hezbollah's head of military operations for years. He's actually the person responsible for the bombing of the Marine Corps barracks and the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, Beirut. back in the early 80s. 243. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so let's leave that meeting for a minute. We brought him up, Morgan, just so, so, so this doesn't get kicked to the side. Uh, prior to 9-11, Hezbollah killed more American citizens than any terrorist organization in the world. So if, if any passion comes across in my voice as we talk about this free pass given to Iran uh, and to Hezbollah, nuclear deals, all this stuff, um, what I would ask is since 1979, the Iran hostage crisis, how is the behavior different? What has changed and God bless all the families, the U.S. families that um, can claim loved ones all the way back. I, I, when I served in the United States Navy, I had a senior chief that worked with <laughs> for me would be the wrong term. I was 22 years old, had no idea what I was doing. He took care of me. So I, I would say we worked together, which is probably why he was good to me, because I never said he worked for me. Um, he was there. He, he was in the Marine Corps barracks carrying out bodies missing limbs. And I mean, this is a rock of a man. He's a mountain. He's a big guy, old salt. And he choked up and he started to cry and walked out of the room telling me the story one day. We had we gotten fairly close and he tried to relate it to me. And even, so this would have been 10 years later, this would have been there, you know, somewhere in 93, 94. And he couldn't even talk about it even to that point, what he'd witnessed. Um, so when we talk about him, I, I think that gets lost in the wash, you know, 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, and then ISIS seem to take a lot away. And I, I, I don't even, I don't know that even what's going on uh, with Hamas, uh, front page news, and then people will see Israel trading, uh, you know, trading uh, fire with Hezbollah on the northern border. And I, I'm not really certain people have a grasp of uh, the enemy of the state that they've been for years and years and years. So, well, and that's the whole thing. You've got you've got uh, Lebanon on the northern border. You've got Syria on the northern and the eastern border. You've got Hamas all over uh, Gaza, obviously. They built an entire infrastructure inside there. When you look at the number of Islamic countries in the Middle East and you look at Israel, it's a sea of green of all these other ones and then one small, tiny country that has been defending itself against all the others. And then what you've got on the southern border... Uh, at the at the crossing there, that thing. Have you seen the wall between Egypt and Gaza? I would love to have that wall on our southern border. They don't even want these folks coming in because you know why? Because they've outlawed the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and they don't want anybody like Hamas, to your point, infiltrating Egyptian society again. And so this this thing is just like you say. It's 
this is nothing new. This has been playing out for thousands of years. It's just now the the tactics have remained the same, but the tools now. We've got weapons, you know, nukes. Uh, if Iran gets there, you know, the, the the stakes have changed. The tactics are the same, but the stakes have changed because of the tools that are available to them now. Well, and let's be fair. I mean, our, our servicemen, God bless every one of them. They're they're under fire overseas every day right now, and they're all Iranian proxies. There's Khatib Hezbollah that operates out of Iraq now. Uh, the Houthis that are, you know, an, another um, supported by I, the IRGC, uh, you know, Hamas. It, it's uh, it's real life stuff. So it, it, fortunately, we gave Iran a few billion dollars back a few months ago because they're they're really positive folks that we can probably have a future relationship with. But. You know, six billion. I think it was six yeah. billion we gave them, uh, and in addition to all the other money they've received. Yeah, what what could you do with six billion in terms of supporting Hamas and Hezbollah? Yeah, I don't know how many times you have to touch the hot stove till you realize it gets burnt. But again, I, I'll just stick with my statement. I'd, I'd like to know what's changed since our our, our folks were taken hostage in '79. I, I don't see a lot of difference in behavior, but um, yeah, I was a freshman in college in 1979 watching the revolution unfold on TV, and many of my sweet mates on the floor I was at were Baha'i. They were the Baha'i faith in Iran. They lost everything. Um, uh, Arsalan Bayat, um, um, uh, trying to think of some of the other guys, uh, but I, I remember of these guys, it just, the calls for them, they were agonized. Their parents lost their factories. They lost their businesses. Mm. Nothing has changed since 1979. It's still the supreme leader. You look at uh, the role of the IRGC, the Quds Force, some of the other folks, the Basij, I think is what they call it. Their job is to protect the revolution. You know, it's it's to pr- continue to perpetuate this. That's why Trump took out Soleimani. He was the head of the Quds Force at that time, but he landed in Iraq to do what? Continue doing what Iran did, which was kill Americans, use these things called explosively formed penetrators, which they were propagating all over the place, far deadlier, I think, than IEDs. Uh, they've done nothing but export. The only thing they've exported that's been successful for them has been terrorism hmm. since 1979. And anybody with common sense that will just take the time to do the research, you know, and just <laughs> there, nothing has changed. I mean, you guys are absolutely correct. Well, and what's changed? You know, we, we tried a nuclear deal in 2016 and we're doing prisoner swaps and we're giving money back. But what's changed? And all of a sudden our troops are under fire all over the world and commerce is being you know, shut down uh, in that part of the world. So I, I just really like to know, you know, it, look, I guess we got digressed a little bit. One thing I do feel like I should point out too, though, is just to be really clear, at least from my own view, I, I don't believe in having enemies forever. And that's not what I'm advocating here forever. And that's why I bring up the point, what has changed? I think, I, I think you should always look for the way forward. Uh, but to do that, there has to be a change to mind and behavior. It is possible for someone to stop being your enemy. I mean, there was a time when Japan was Japan, our enemy. I was about Japan's to say Japan, Germany, right Italy, mm-hmm. you know, the axis of the, the axis powers, the axis of evil. They now they're now Italy's a NATO member, Germany's a NATO member. We've got tremendous relationships with Japan. To your point, they can change, but you know what had to change was the leadership, the philosophy, and they had to realize, hey, we got to be a part of this world. And I'll tell you what helped, though. The Marshall Plan helped a lot, especially for Japan, you know, I mean, for Germany after World War II. Well, in Japan, look, Japan, well, I guess they all did. They had to demilitarize for a while. But the point is, we shouldn't say never, and I, I certainly am not advocating that in any way, shape, or form. 
For me personally, I would demand a change in behavior. A, stop targeting, kidnapping, and killing American citizens. That'd be a really great place to start. And uh, so I guess we digress. But um, so I'll bring it back for you this time, Morgan. Going back to our regularly scheduled podcast with Zach. (laughs) But you know what, Zach, though, this is important stuff, and I'll tell you why. Because you cannot just look at an event and take that as a point in time and think you understand all about it without understanding the tremendous amount of historical context. And not just 20, 30, 40 years ago, but 2,000 years ago that goes into this. One of my favorite cartoons from Doonesbury was um, Duke, the guy from CIA, is talking to Ahmed, I think. you know, He's, he's in a dish dash in a neutral. He says, well, why, why do you hate this guy? He goes, because 2,000 years ago, his cousin killed my cousin. You know, it's been going on. It's what was his on. name? What was his name? I don't know. He's just my cousin. Just my cousin. Yep. No, it's, I've read before, like the two places they say will never, where that's the most intact is, is you know, Israel, you know, Jerusalem, and in the Balkans. They said it's just the, the, the family feuds, for lack of a better word, that just go back, the clan feuds that go back thousands of years and, you know, to your point, but... So First living proof the Hatfield and McCoys can bury the hatchet, <laughs> literally right. and figuratively. Absolutely. That's it. So, all right. So we're back in we're we're back in Damascus, 2007. This meeting's held. Uh, Maduro's being offered by a person we think was Imad Magnia. If not, it was certainly a a, a high-ranking uh, military type Hezbollah figure. Uh, it all adds up to being Magnia, especially to be able to preach and offer that. This would have been 2007, and in February 2008, Magnia was assassinated in a joint operation. Again, open source reporting. I don't have some inside. That's why you're comfortable saying it. Joint operation between the CIA and the Mossad, uh, which I think neither have taken complete credit for. But February 2008, um, I, th- I think Magnia went to use it's either a car or a phone that took his head off, but uh, February 2008, which ironically was just after uh, a failed undercover operation as part of Cassandra. Interesting. But but you know what? Again, tactics haven't changed. The tools have. uh, Israel has been thought to have been taking out top Iranian scientists, especially in Tehran. That's part of the research for my book on the second one. To even things were even what they suspect was a remote controlled um, uh, rifle, uh, you know, or bomb and other yeah, stuff to take out it. a top nuclear scientist, the one that was basically the father of their nuke program. You know, it's uh, the, the, and this is very real consequence. There's a lot of people in the world I don't want to have nukes, like North Korea, you know, but definitely somebody you don't want to have get nukes is is Iran. Why? Because they will export it like they do everything else. Mm-hmm. Amen. Talk about letting the cat out of the bag. All right. Well, oh. can, can continue on, Zach. I mean, I know you're sitting here trying to clean. There's so many things. We got, we've thrown so many balls in the air. Let's take some <laughs> of the balls out of the air here. Oh, it's going to be your job to make sense of it and put it out in a uh, understandable <laughs> podcast. So you have the, the heavy lift. Uh, yeah. So that, that was kind of a, a side story. But going back to, to Titan, um, ultimately what happens is uh, – uh, this young Lebanese agent who I described is given a very small task. He's green. He's new. You know, one misconception about DEA is we don't do a lot of really deep undercover. 
there, there probably was a time back in the day. Well, there was a time back in the day. We certainly did much deeper long-term undercovers, but especially in the international arena, we, we don't do much of that. Um, in our groups, the, the BIU, we had a stable of testifying informants. Uh, just unbelievable. I mean, if, you know, if Murph, when he was a, when, when Murph was a big boy in DEA, if he'd come to me and said, Hey, need some help. We got a group and they need an undercover that speaks Arabic, like, okie doke. I got three kind of describe them. which one would be better. Like, really? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, we need a guy that speaks Chinese to go with them. Like, no problem. Got one. You know, we just had somebody for everything. Uh, but the beauty of these guys is the reason we didn't like to use undercovers, we might give them a very small role, hopefully something you want to, you'd love an agent undercover because they're such strong testifiers and very credible, uh, but you can't cover them, especially in the international arena. So if you're running an operation and bad guy, let's say you get up to the big guy, man, you got a cartel head, uh, but they're really good at what they do, right? They're like, yeah, well, we're going to, we're going to hold the meeting on a yacht out in international waters. The op's dead. They're never going to let the undercover go out there because you can't cover them. Um, that's the whole deal is what, you know, one thing, losing agents along the way, God bless them. Like, you, 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 you're not going to allow for a deal that's not on your terms, not on your turf, that you can't control, and mostly that you can't cover the safety and security of the undercover. If you use an informant, I mean, we'd sprinkle a little holy water on them and say, brother, I hope I see you on the other side. Let me know how it goes. Make sure the recording comes out. And they'd be wired up and, and anything goes much more. Um, so young, uh, young agent. And, um, he, uh, he's given a very small role. I mentioned that the walk-in informant, the walk-in informant is in the middle of everything. These guys are using him. He's, he's helping to coordinate things going on in Central America. And the agent's only role is going to be, uh, I, I think he's the driver for a day. And the the operative, the, the Hezbollah-affiliated trafficker that controls that Central American area um, takes him around. And next thing you know, they love they love Rick. He's going to be the guy. Like, we're done with the other guy. You're going to be the guy moving forward. Uh, and he's given a much bigger role. And they want him to basically take over Central American operations. I think at one point they even had a, someone – they wanted a marrying into this. They had a, a bride set up. You talk about taking one for the team. What? <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, oh, what's behind? What's behind that veil? Yeah. yeah oh my god. Crazy. Uh, and listen, you know, this is someone you should get on. I, I could help try to arrange that, Murph. I don't want to tell the guys. Rick from Group Ten, right? Yeah. And I, I, I know who you talk about. Yeah. It, there's so much of a story. Growing up in Lebanon, his dad had to save him from the militias. You know, at a young age, he's being recruited to fight. And it's just unbelievable story, but uh, you know, my one of my buddies used to have a story, uh, saying, "Not my story to tell." So let him tell his own story. He's the best. Uh, but I'll just say that he ends up in the in the middle of this long-standing undercover. That, that's when we start seizing money's left and right, and we're climbing all the way up. And um, we get a meeting blast all the way up. He's supposed to have an undercover meeting in in Jordan, and uh, we believe. It was getting really close to Mugnia. And uh, the night before the meeting, it's all blessed. Everything's good. We would always have to coordinate with all the interagency. And we clear, we were fighting with folks a lot at this point. Um, people viewed DEA and especially special ops as playing in their sandbox. A lot of folks weren't initially bought into this idea. We, we actually uncovered uh, what 
in Arabic uh, translated means the business uh, business affairs component of Hezbollah. They actually had a a group set up that was closely related to their their dark ops that was set up just to make money to conduct the drug business and the black market oil business. And people didn't believe us at first. Um, eventually it became everybody else's baby. But in the beginning, we were just these dum-dums, didn't know what we were talking about. The DEA thinks Hezbollah is involved in drug trafficking. They're wrong. Uh, and folks just thought we were trying to to push our way into the terrorism game. Hey, Zach, was, was the name of it? The, the press release has something here. It's called the Lebanese Hezbollah's External Security Organization Business Affairs. Yeah. Yep, and what we would just commonly refer to as the business affairs component. BAC, and, yeah. And that that group had agents, so the, the Hezbollah, and I mean reporting straight to Iran, and um, they were they were tasked with all of these nefarious activities that that we're talking about, and so we started to find ourselves in a lot of interagency battles, um, and. I've spoken about this before, and to, and to be clear, you know, I don't like to go out and, and badmouth. I'll, I'll tell funny stories. I've met, sure, some individual agents that other agencies, we didn't uh, hit it off or see eye to eye. We weren't going to break bread together. But I don't doubt anyone's patriotism, anyone's uh, goodwill, you know, especially when it came, for example, to the CIA. We would just see the world differently. We had different goals. It didn't mean we weren't you know, both uh, proud Americans doing what we thought was the best for our country. The problem is we would run our cases and we ended up with, I believe, the best human intelligence in the world. Um, we just we, we had a network and we constantly had these other agencies coming and demanding access to our sources. Uh, and they didn't like it when the answer back was, tell you what, fellas, we'll do what you guys do. You give me 10 questions. I'd be happy to ask the source and I'll come back and give you the answers like, you know, that's the way they would treat us, right? And they, they oh, didn't yeah. like uh, turnabout was not fair play, apparently. So um, the problem is we would wind up in these quandaries where the other agencies and mostly the intelligence agencies would say, you know, you can't do this. It's going to hurt our intelligence gathering. You know, one of these guys you're targeting is, a, is an important asset for us. And we would say, well, your asset's killing a lot of people. <laughs> So it was criminal for him to come off the playing field. And and that would be a constant debate. And and I do understand the idea that, you know, they that it could dry up an intelligence stream. I think it go, kind of goes that argument we had about the AGEOs before. When is when is an operating? When is enough enough? When what's the goal here? Is the well, that's that's my point. You know, informants are like buses. There's always another one coming around. You know, you might dry up something here, but you know, you can develop something later. But I agree with you though. Is that when you're taking out Americans? I agree. It's time. It's time to thin the herd. It's time to remove you from the playing field. There ought to be some red lines that say, look. Letting a certain amount of drugs go back in the day before fentanyl was around, or letting money go—that's one thing. But allowing an asset to be involved in the taking of American lives, uh, for me, that's like a red line. That's like no. Uh, well, then you have double agents. Is someone really being straight? Are they just feeding you intel for the money they're making? I mean, we've gone through. Look, we had to worry about that all the time. I feel like a lot of times you get a hell of a lot better, more honest answers when somebody's in custody. Facing 20 years. I mean, we've talked about this before. The, the thing these guys fear 
more than anything in the world is being incarcerated for the rest of our lives in the United States and or being OFAC, you know, being sanctioned by the Treasury Department and having all the fruits of their illicit labors for years being taken away because then they did it for nothing. Hey, that's yeah. a line out of Narcos. What is that, Murph? Uh, what was the, the saying? They'd rather have a two, they prefer a tomb in Colombia to a cell in America? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. So, you know, the, the night before this big undercover is going to happen, it gets shut down by our, our friends and other agencies. And uh, again, this was very, very shortly before Mugnia was taken out. So who but knows you said what it got shut down. What, what, were the, what, what happened to shut it down? Well, to be clear, the undercover was based on there was a ship, a, a drug shipment that had been coordinated that I believe was sitting in, in the port in Jordan. And uh, ironically, after our meeting went to shit the next day, the ship disappeared. There ended up being the containers that were on board with the Coke ended up being just left with some empty containers with a cover load of clothing in them. And um, story. I can't tell you this is true. Supposedly a couple of gringos were seen walking on the port. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the rest is history. So (laughs) you, you can put together that. Any way you want. I, I'll speak of it no more. A couple but of gringos. <laughs> oh, okay. kind of, that, that piece of the case went to hell, but so much was learned there. And so to be really clear, I, I wasn't um, – I have the big picture now. Jack Kelly was running all of Cassandra. He was you know, the, the puppet master, putting all the pieces together. My group was based out of Latin America, and we had some uh, really, really great cases going on that, that – fit right into this this picture. Hey, Zach, um, real quick question about that. Just yes, from an operational standpoint, sure. when you've got operations, but then you've got a project on top of it, do you have uh, a, you know, a HMFIC in charge of the uh, project that now has authority to call the shots on the operations, or is that still kind of like a distributed, uh, um, uh, you know, leadership type of thing? You're going to get sick of me, Morgan, but there's no straight answers, brother. Um, well, I've kind no, of figured that. Every answer is a long answer. So <laughs> I have to give you like a little bit of taste for how this works. DEA and FBI could not be more different. Um, I believe the reason that DEA was really good in this arena, we're really good at drugs, and to the degree we touch into terrorism, really good because we're incredibly risk tolerant, we're incredibly nimble, and we're decentralized. We're probably decentralized to a fault. Murph and I could tell you war stories about, you know, the specialized in charge of of one huge office gets in a fight with a specialist in charge of another huge office. You need a decision to come out of this meeting. And all that comes out of the meeting is F you, F you, and everyone yeah. goes their own way. And instead of having one huge, great case, we have two half-assed cases that never get to where they should. I mean, that's a fault DEA's always had. Yep. Um, the flip side is the FBI can't make a decision without it going through their headquarters. Uh, and it makes them, I believe, very... Um, uh, very heavy footed uh, and, 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 and at times um, just ineffective because they can't move at that pace. You know, I would go overseas to run an op and I've given this example before uh, I had a great boss, Lou Millione, um, and I'd be over with a team uh, running a group. And if our op goes bad, it's going to be an international incident, uh, massive problem for the state department, huge, huge problem with uh, international relations with whatever country we're operating in. Uh, and, and sometimes they're really dicey. And, and I would talk to the boss. I'd talk to Lou and I'd say, look, we've got some problems over here. Here's what's going on. Um, this is really touchy. And 
All I would say back is like, let me ask you a question. You got it? And I'd say, I got it. I just want you to know we're, we're, we're up against. It wasn't my question. You got it. And I'd say, yeah, I got it. And he'd say, go forth and do great things. And that was it. That was, that was our, and people can fault that if they want, but I think our track record spoke for itself. It, we didn't go into this. It was thoughtful. We had planned out every contingency um, and we had faith in ourselves to do it the right way and to walk away if we had to. We're very good at walking away when the odds just weren't what they should be. Um, so that, I, that was a long answer to your question, but, um, you know, was there one guy in control? We had a lot of autonomy to run the case, but DEA Special Operations had incredible sway in the agency. Um, but it wasn't so much somebody saying, this is what you'll do. It was um, <laughs> more like being guilted into doing the right thing. Um, well, you know, and and just to give you guys credit, Lou is not just arbitrarily saying, yeah, go do what you got to do. This is based on past experience where he's developed just a complete trust, complete 100% trust in you guys because you've continually done the right thing. And he knows he can trust you. You know, and he's there to back you up when it when it happens. But I love what you're saying about it, SOD, because we would bring that was one of the uh, central objectives of SOD was to bring not only DEA groups but other agencies together to kind of. I mean, how many times do we have? You're you're trying to figure out where this case is going to go. What's the biggest benefit to the American taxpayer if we take this case down in a certain way? And you've been in meetings, I've been in meetings in, in SOD in the training room there where you'd have 60 people sitting in there from multiple agencies to include prosecutors, and it's it's almost come to, to fist fights in there. But every meeting that I went into, and some of them I'm just an observer, I was, I was Derek's executive assistant toward the end, and you're just there to kind of monitor things. But every one of those meetings, we came out with a plan. Did it make everybody happy? No. Did it make sense? Yes. Some people lost control of their cases. Maybe it was taken out of their judicial district, taken to the Southern District of New York. You couldn't fault the SDNY because they would kick ass and take names where the others would sit back and hem haw and, well, I don't know if we got enough. You know, well, how many prosecutors have you ever met that said you have enough evidence? <laughs> they always want more. It doesn't matter. No, that's it. So I just I wanted to give a shout out to you and to SOD there because you're not giving yourself credit. Well, look, it's appreciated. When I took over my group, there was actually a lot of animosity within DEA towards SOD uh, because we got more money. Let's be fair. We got GWAT. Once we started really kicking ass, we got uh, – it's called GWAT, Global War on Terrorism. We got GWAT money when we started getting in this terrorism game, which came from the military. Well, why? Our guys – so we had an RBIU. We ultimately started with one group, 959. We created a second group that ended up more focused on terrorism. Before you knew it, we just went regional. We all did every type of charge. So instead of, you know, calling one group one and one group the other, we just went regional. I ran a Latin American group. We had an African group um, uh, addressing a lot of issues that were starting to happen on the continent there. We had a, a Europe group and we had an Asia group, which was largely just focused on Afghanistan, originally um, really on the Taliban. And so after 9-11, you know, our guys... Again, people didn't want to hear the convergence of drugs and terror. Really, the Taliban is what started really flushing that out. They were hosting Osama bin Laden. They became the enemy when we, you know, invaded Afghanistan, and they controlled all the poppy fields, and so they controlled the heroin trade. And what started happening is you had these groups in the military that were working IED networks, 
And they were starting to see that the same phones, the same uh, selectors that were involved in, in these IED networks were DEA was putting the numbers in because they were the numbers we were targeting in the heroin trafficking. Well, next thing you know, our guys that were running Afghanistan, their sources were so good, they were helping to stop IED attacks. Uh, yet people didn't think we had a place in the sandbox, right? The, you are going to see, uh, I think Dave Asher spoke to it in the article. Dave's a terror finance expert. He was uh, he helped run the, the money laundering, targeting, uh, and special ops in, in Cassandra. Phenomenal guy. And same thing. He had been involved in, now we're talking about in Iraq, and you had these Shia. And when you think Shia, you can think IRGC and, and Hezbollah. Shia uh, militia networks. Uh, not so different from Khatib Hezbollah today that are that are dropping, you know, shooting missiles at our troops over in in Iraq. Well, they they were blowing everything and everything, anything and everything up in Iraq. And you you know the Sunnis and the Shias are fighting each other with the Americans in the middle in Iraq. Same exact thing was happening. You had these IED networks in Iraq that were being targeted, and some of the same numbers you extrapolate out their contacts, and they were hitting the same numbers in Colombia, ultimately, maybe one degree, two degrees, three degrees off, that we were targeting in our drug trafficking networks down that were running into Cassandra. And so the exact same thing happened. And, and, and so we started to coordinate all that through through uh, through special ops. And so there was there could be animosity towards us at times, but um, we, always, we did try to do the right thing, Murph, and, and we would we'd lend out some of our sources. We'd try to help other folks. We, we wouldn't you know, we, we brought on guys in other groups that maybe they, they walked into something huge and we were a little more equipped to see it through or had a better budget or better relationships with the prosecutors or we had the, the sources you would need to put in undercover to, to build the case out. And we would bring them on as our, our partners rather than just try to take the case. Right, right. Every agency is not like that. You know, what you were describing, Zach, it almost reminds me of World War II, the difference between how the U.S. Army, the Americans operated, and the German Army. German, very hierarchical. If you wanted to slow the Germans down, you took out their officer because they would slow down. But on the Americans, if you took out an officer, they'd look at some sergeant and go, you're the new XO. You know, right. let's get yeah. moving. Yeah. Next, step up. next man up, right? Next man up. Yep. Well, let's talk about next man up. So now, now funnel this all in. So we've set a lot of the stage. So I know now does uh, Project Cassandra, does it get its roots? Does it start in 2015 or does it start before that and is just formalized in 2015? Oh, no, it starts long before that. I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you exactly when um, it, 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 when Cassandra was actually given birth. But I mean, I, I take it back to Titan in, you know, 2007, 2008. It's when you really start to see this. Um, and then. I, I did a so I, I was in the BIU as a as a case maker uh, up until 2010. I promoted and then I did a, a tip a more typical SOD job. I was a staff coordinator doing what we we're talking about, running the intel. And uh, Derek Maltz and his brilliance, you know, most of the guys from the BIU when they went up, they they went into the Syntoc to the Terrorism Center. And Derek thought elsewise. His view was there was so much going on in Latin America that wasn't being coordinated in the Terrorism Center that he sent me. Uh, to the Colombian desk. And next thing you know, I was partnered up with all the guys in the Syntoc and I was bringing in all the intel that was coming out of Colombia that was Lebanese, Hezbollah related and and wasn't, and especially in Venezuela, and wasn't um, fitting right in. So um, ultimately, I ended up taking on a group in uh, in 13. I, I went back to the BIU, but as a supervisor's time running the Latin America group. 
And it was really kicking up then. And my group had some really good cases. We had some uh, unbelievable high-level Colombian um, cooperators who, I mean, think like cartel head types that had, you know, kind of knew their day had come and, and were able to work out a deal where where they would help us out before they had to formally turn themselves in and do as much good as they could. And uh, there's a guy, his name we still won't use, but call him the ghost. And um, he, uh, in the article written, they call him the ghost. I think his name might've come out, but he ended up being a top level, uh, what Jack gave the name super facilitators. So super facilitators is a name we gave to uh, these Hezbollah operators that um, they were kind of the grease that made the engine run, right? They're the guys. Again, I told you there's no easy answers, Morgan. So my group, when I ran a group, our theory was everybody was going after the cartel heads, right? You take Pablo Escobar. Everybody in the world was trying to, to do Pablo. We, we, we didn't think it was a, a good um, – we didn't think we were being good stewards of the, of the investment DEA met, uh, put in us by just trying to do the same guys that everybody else was all over. Uh, because, look, at the end of the day, what, a cartel is the mis most misused word in the world. A cartel is just a group of investors. You share the profits and you share the losses. And what they're really there for is the losses. So no one person's taking a you know, $10 million, $20 million hit. Um, what we'll now refer to as a super facilitator, I just called them the logisticians. You have these guys that are so critical to the trade, to black market trade of any kind, because they know the politicians that have to be paid off. They have the connections to the transporters. They have, a, a, they have pilots on their speed dial. They have ship captains. They have access to boats. They have the paramilitaries in any place aren't going to take their head off because they've got them on the payroll. They know how to make nice with everyone. So you take... Uh, Venezuela, for example, there's a region called Apure. It's on the Colombian border. Even though it's Venezuela, the FARC's 10th front would control it. It's where all the drug flights were leaving uh, for all, all over Central America. It's where a lot of these Hezbollah operations originally, where the drugs were originally coming out of. You had to have the Venezuelan radars turned off. You had to have Venezuelan officials on the payroll that would allow you to operate there. Um, and there's only a handful of people that had access to all those different people that whose blessing was needed or support was needed to make an operation run. Well, that's what these super facilitators were. Um, so we had these sources and, you know, they gave us a picture. So like, I have no idea who this guy in Colombia and it's not in Colombia and Venezuela. Every Middle Eastern drug trafficker was El Turco. That's what they called them all. Uh, with the exception of after 9-11, they also start calling them Taliban. So if you, if they were going to describe to you a you know a a Middle Eastern drug trafficker is operating there, say well what was his name El Turco okay the Turk that's great what was his real name I only knew him as El Turco uh, or you know El Taliban um, they gave us a picture it's like there's this really you know guy with a lot of connections El Turco he's uh, I met him in Venezuela he's broker in thousands of kilos and he wanted to move and. I gave Jack Kelly the picture. said, hey, this guy, they say he's a player. And Jack's face goes blank. He says, where the F did you get this? I said, I just told you to get these sources. He's like, do you know whose picture they just gave you? Do you know who they've been meeting with? I said, El Turco. Dumb, <laughs> <laughs> dumb. Let me tell you who El Turco really is. And he ends up being this guy that they talked about called the ghost. Uh, he had traveled frequently. And so we realized that we were already, in this one case in particular, we were, you know, Pretty high up the uh, 
up the uh, totem pole in the hierarchy. Um, and we were ultimately able to ultimately, um, you know, get charges and were chased them all over the world, uh, trying to get them. We got really close in the Balkans once. I was over there with the team and had an unbelievable uh, undercover op. Uh, our counterparts from one of the Balkan countries was just were just phenomenal. They gave us an undercover. We showed off like a uh, it was like an old. Soviet World War II like weapons bunker um, as you know they were looking for weapons as what we could give and so the boss was supposed to come in and at the last second he didn't show up you know uh, what this reminds me of reminds me of the old remember the old show to tell the truth yeah will the real El Turco please stand up <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, just, you know you got in my head will the real Slim Shady please stand up will the real Slim Shady please stand up please stand up um, yeah yeah uh, no doubt and about the same time this is going on Another one of our groups just ran uh, an unbelievable undercover uh, that culminated in the Czech Republic on a guy named Ali Fayed. Ali Fayed was a very uh, prominent Hezbollah arms trafficker, um, based out, I believe, based out of the Ukraine. Reason to believe he was protected uh, all the way up at the top ranks in Moscow. Um. And very similar to the Victor Boot case, some of the other things we ran, he agreed to um, provide the undercovers weapons. He knew they were going to be used to kill Americans. Uh, he, we were able to arrest him in the Czech Republic. Long extradition battle. Um, it was argued in the, in the article on Cassandra that there wasn't a lot of support given by uh, the Obama administration to get him here. I, I can't really speak to that. I could just tell you a, well over a year long extradition battle um, late in the game, Hezbollah took uh, some hostages in Lebanon uh, that they used to broker uh, for, for Ali's release. So he never made it here. There's a lot of, a uh, lot of wives tales about that. Uh, there is a theory out there that I adhere to that it was a, a very friendly hostage taking um, there's even an article I stumbled on about some of the defense attorneys working for some of these folks might have been involved, um, where they go over there and like, oh, no, I've been taken hostage. What am I going to do? And, uh, you know, they got treated very well. And as soon as Ali was released, they were given a nice payment and sent on their way. But but it is right out of the, the playbook where, you know, for them to take hostages that they were supposedly some Czech citizens taken hostage to, to so trade. So where have we seen that play out over and over again? China, Russia, you know, all of our other well, Hamas and Israel right now, right? How many how many hostages are still being held by Hamas? So, the, I mean, you know, it's one of those things. It's one of those tactics that continues to pay dividends for the people who do it. Yeah, it's it's good business. It's like I always, you know, I've said before when when the Victor Boot trade was made. It, it, it's just my fear, and I think it's proven true. Um, certainly I know the family of the young wall street journal reporter would feel that way. He was what kidnapped six months after that, um, by in Moscow. And, and, um, you know, it's very good business to have an American in your back pocket. And I think we're, we're really seeing that play out over and over again. Um, so yeah, so we had, you know, the Ali case and, um, uh, a lot of these cases, we really, so our groups in the BIU, we were case specific. Uh, Jack was running this big picture. Um, there was a lot of people pushing for uh, a RICO indictment against Hezbollah. Um, I spoke directly to the guys in Southern District. I think there's some confusion over that. 
The BIU did, the, I believe, the first ever international RICO against the Norte Valle cartel in Colombia in the early 2000s. It's just an unwieldy way to do an international case. It is a very strong statement. Um, and the strong statement is you're making that whole group, a, a, you know, a criminal organization. Um, so, so I'll point out that the thinking behind doing a RICO and the thinking behind attacking them as an organization was a blueprint that I think was created with the FARC. Uh, there was a massive, uh, I forget how many persons, uh, indictment against the entire fire, FARC hierarchy in the early 2000s. Uh, and it affected some of the cases I was doing in a somewhat negative way. I lost a little control of the cases, and I'll, I'll be the first to say I was wrong. I, I initially didn't see the logic of it. Um, I just wanted to run my cases and 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 I, my way of doing business was you did case, you built up cooperators, you went up, kept working up the chain, working up the chain. The amazing thing about the, the FARC and, and what I didn't see coming, I was like, a lot of these guys are going to get killed in the battlefield. You're never going to see them here. What's the point? It's an academic exercise. And the reason I say I was wrong is what, what I didn't see coming is what it completely did. The FARC is not so different than Hezbollah. It was a terrorist organization that had an absolute political component. They did play politics in Colombia the same way Hezbollah is an incredible political force in Lebanon. Um, but they had a military wing and they were fighting a war and they committed terrorist acts and they committed terrorist acts against United States citizens. When the entire organization was essentially indicted, it criminalized them. And there's a really weird counterintuitive Thing that goes on when a group's committing terrorist acts when they have a cause when they're behalf of god or some political movement i feel like they're given a little bit more of a break we don't have to agree with them but people think well at least they're guided by some principle when you criminalize them and when you say they're nothing more than dirty drug traffickers they lose all credence they lose a lot of support they lose a lot of following and the political movement or, or anything any way that they try to legitimize themselves seems to go to the wayside. And that's 100% what happened to the FARC. They, they lost their teeth. They weren't taken seriously anymore. They were just looked at as dirty drug traffickers. And I feel like that's, that's was a worthy goal with Hezbollah. I think that's, that's what we're on the way to doing, saying these guys are no more than a mafia. Like, stop giving them – you know, there's an idea in the U.S. government. You can read it in the Cassandra article where, you know, there was some some uh, some of our higher ranking authorities were saying, like, oh, well, you know, they've become this massive political force and we need to legitimize them and try to weed out the bad actors. <laughs> and where I would say their track record's clear. They still need to pay for Beirut and uh, uh, the Marine Corps barracks and all those lives lost. We need to completely criminalize them and take away any sense of legitimacy that anyone might try to grant them. Um, and that's, that's what I think the goal was. And what we started to see happen, we were so effective in getting to these high levels. We were really making a lot of folks uncomfortable. Um, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist. I do think there's a lot of ironies. There's a lot of things that go very hand in hand with uh, President Obama's nuclear deal. I won't sit here and tell you that anybody shut us down. I will tell you unequivocally that there are policy decisions that at the very least made continue to pursue some of these cases uh, unfruitful for the prosecuting authorities. So for practical means, we were shut down. I have some heard some 
pretty credible stories of meetings that folks were in, though, where it was made clear that there was a lot of higher government officials that were uncomfortable with our cases, that there was a lot of discussion on um, what will be Hezbollah's reaction to our continued targeting of them. What will that, how will that, uh, how will that make them feel? Right. (laughs) Well, will it further endanger U.S. citizens? Will they take more hostages? My problem with that theory is you're giving someone a free pass. You're saying they're bad enough that they're allowed to do whatever they want because we're scared of them. And the United States can't afford to act like that with, with any, uh, criminal terrorist bad actor in the world. We need the message to be out that it doesn't, we don't care how bad you think you are. You are not above the law and you will be taken off the, the playing field. Are you familiar with the story of what Russia did when I think it was Hezbollah kidnapped a couple of Russians that you can actually find this. You can go just you can go to the Al Gore's amazing internet. Um, apparently, back in the days of the KGB, they said, "Okay, comrade, you want to do that?" They went and got the families of all these high-ranking people and just started whacking some of them. <laughs> you wouldn't you'd be surprised how fast hostages get released when the things that matter most to the higher ups start getting whacked. And KGB was whacking some people. It's and crazy. that effectively ended kidnapping of Russian citizens by uh, pr- probably Hezbollah, you know, or, or something similar like that. But I say that to say this too. Hey, um, so do you think that what they did there? Because uh, I pulled up because I wanted to just be factually correct. Because when I was down on Plan Columbia, FARC was a big issue at that time. Um, but in 2016, the FARC formally signed a uh, an agreement, you know, where they dissolved disarmed. Do, number one, do you believe that's true? Because number two, in 2021, what they did, uh, and I've got this press release here from the State Department, they removed the t- terror designations of the FARC as being a foreign terrorist organization and also as a specially designated uh, global terrorist. Um, do you? So do you think that was, do you think the strategy back then <laughs> resulted in this? Or do you think what we're, what I just described to you now is bullshit that FARC is still uh, uh, active in a terrorist organization? Man, I don't know how many times I have to warn you. There's no easy answers, brother. Um, there's, there's what happened after the FARC, or as, as that happened, they were actually splintering, and they broke up into what's called bandus criminales, criminal bands, which were just incredibly heavily armed trafficking groups. Um, and so, uh, it almost goes like to that argument about the Mexican cartels. Like, no, now they're just an informal terrorist group that acts like a terrorist group. Right. (laughs) So I don't believe that. Um, But to be incredibly clear, the FARC uh, for years and years and years um, has had the support of the Venezuelan government, overt support. I mean, going back to Chavez, uh, they had a FARC representative uh, was based in uh, Caracas and, um, Years of hard work by Venezuela finally produced fruit in the last Colombian election and a leftist for the first time in decades, a leftist leader, Petro, was elected president of Colombia. So it actually concerns me because I, I, I don't think it's irony that the FARC's um, given a free pass in some ways. A lot of the same things are going on. And then for the first time, Petro, to be clear, had been a member of the FARC. Uh, so, you know, I don't buy into it. Um, the alliance with the Venezuelan government is incredibly strong. The Venezuelan's alliance with, with Russia and Iran is real. And um, I think there's a lot, you know, it, it, it pains me to see the overtures we're making to the Venezuelan government now. 
A lot of it I know. They want to see the oil spigots turn back on. Everybody loves that. I sure do when I go in my car and fill it up with gas. But I would give you the same argument that we gave before related to Iran. What's changed since 79? What has changed with the Venezuelan administration? We're almost waving our hands up. We're saying, hey, the sanctions aren't working because China, Russia, and Iran are, are doing too much behind our backs to evade the sanctions. So I'm just not a defeatist. I think you keep finding better policies, and, and I'd like to see some regime change and, and some actions change. Hey, I, I pulled up the story real quick. This was actually the KGB adopted novel, brutal, and apparently effective methods of dealing with terrorists who attack Soviet interests in the Middle East. This yeah. actually happened. Uh, Jerusalem Post reported on this. 1986, they secured the release of three kidnapped Soviet diplomats in Beirut um, who were kidnapped by Lebanese Shia Muslim leader. They castrated a relative of him, sending him the severed organs and then shooting the relative in the head. So um, they quickly secured the release of four Soviet diplomats, uh, three Soviet diplomats, one was released. Uh, so what I'm saying is that sometimes, again, the way you negotiate is you got to negotiate in a language they understand, which is exactly what KGB did. And the, the pattern it set was no more Russians were kidnapped anywhere throughout the Middle East after that. It's mm-hmm. crazy. You know, I, I think one of the biggest problems we have is is we uh, we like to isolate all these different things going on in the world. We there's a you have the Soviet the the Russian uh, Ukrainian war, and now that's kind of been kicked to the side a little because of Gaza and the problem with Hamas, and <laughs> you have Iranian weapons being imported into Ukraine to help the Russians. Uh, try to defeat the Ukrainians. Um, you have Iran's support of all the proxies that are now dropping bombs on the U.S. and Iraq and elsewhere. Like it's all interrelated. Venezuela is right in the middle of all that. You know, there's a story a couple of years ago. Our sanctions work. Maduro supposedly was on his way out the door. I mean, I'm sure it's an exaggeration, but the way the story goes, he was on the tarmac and got a call from Putin and said, "Don't leave. I got your back." You know, Russia has missile silos in Venezuela. None of this is none of this goes. There were recently military exercises held in Venezuela, joint military exercises between, I think, Chinese, Russians and Iranians. Like none of this is in a vacuum. And it seems that we can't uh, multitask in our country anymore. We just look at all these as as individual events and uh, and don't have any type of a more global strategy. That's 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 so dangerous with those blinders on where you're just trying to – everybody wants to put it in a specific little box when what you're saying is exactly correct. Yeah. Look, I guess kind of wrapping up the Cassandra thing because I think we're, we're, we hit a good point to, to bring it home. Um, I, there's so much depth to all these stories. It's like we're barely even touching on them, and I feel like we're just going tangent by tangent. But I, I told you I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist, but we did get shut down. It, it, whether intentionally as a – Side result, a little bit of both. Uh, the reality is, at one point, my group's running operations were continuing to target Hezbollah, and I got told by the Southern District of New York, you can no longer use Hezbollah as the terrorist organization in a narco-terrorism charge. So basically, I described the statute, you know, if you're trafficking anywhere in the world and giving financial support to a terrorist organization, then you could be charged. Well, that terrorist organization on paper could not be Hezbollah anymore. And so what I didn't get is they're still State Department listed. They're a terrorist organization. Now, the beauty of the Southern District of New York is they do whatever they want in, in large part. 
That was always their reputation. Their nickname is the Sovereign District of New York. And, you know, Attorney General would say, you can't do this or that, say, yeah, we can. And, um, but there's some exceptions. There's certain charges. Terrorism charges have to be approved in Maine Justice by the, uh, by the terrorism section. Uh, RICO indictments have to be, I believe, have to be approved in, in Maine Justice. Well, the narco-terrorism charge, um, that was a drug charge. Section 21 of the United States Code are the drug laws. It's 21 USC 968. But along the way, the Bureau trying to get us kicked out of their sandbox, being very threatened by us, um, pushed and pushed, and they, they had it started to be considered as a terrorism charge so that it had to be approved in Maine Justice. That gave them sway to go. So next thing you know, the terrorism section of Maine Justice is rejecting some of our of our cases down there and refusing to allow them to be charged. And we know there was a lot of actors that didn't want us in the sandbox that were weighing in behind the scenes and, and helping to make that happen. And and we could no longer use Hezbollah. So you could see practically, you know, they were given a free pass. And uh, but look, in hindsight, it clearly all worked. Iran's not a threat anymore. <laughs> Kumbaya in the world, our troops I feel are so safe. Much better planning my next vacation, you know, over in Tehran, you know, where I grew up at, believe it or not, for three years. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you what was the outcome, but the, you just explained it right there with that one sentence. And there's peace in the Middle East, and, you know, it's safe to travel everywhere. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm shocked you feel this way, Zach. I mean, just, we need to get you some deprogramming and some help. Clearly, I'm in need of help, Morgan. Uh, That's why I came on today. This is my cry for help. The NPR Hour of Power. We're going to talk with Zach today and work through his issues because Zach has many issues. He does. Yeah. yeah one I is mean, the, look, I guess my my closing thought. There's a lot of other places I could go. We get so tra- sidetracked, but you know, one of the fascinating things that we found in in trying to go after the the Hezbollah money laundering networks is. They were using the exact same money laundering networks as Dawood Ibrahim's people. Dawood Ibrahim is one of the most notorious criminals in the world. He's public enemy number one in India. Depending on what reports you believe, he used to run back with us around with Osama back in the day. But he's um, responsible on some levels for the Mumbai attacks for a couple of years ago. For the that was uh, Lashkari Taiba. Yeah. Another terrorist organization. Well, but who's Lakshar supported by? Lakshar supported and protected by the Pakistani ISI. ISI, Which the the ISI ISI created the Taliban. And the Pakistani ISI has been supporting and hosting Dawood as a fugitive from India in in Pakistan, I think in Karachi, for years and years and years. Uh, We did some unbelievable cases in, in Dawood's network, and the ties back to Hezbollah were were just remarkable. Um they use the same money laundering networks. Uh, we targeted a guy out of Suriname who got us directly into Dawood's network. He's Pakistani bloodline. His brother-in-law in Holland was pinched with three hundred thousand uh, dollars, three hundred thousand euros, in a uh, a DEA run um, Hezbollah money laundering operation. Had three hundred thousand euros taken off him. Um, Ali Fayed was working with a an arms company in Kurdistan. Uh, and when we, uh, when my group arrested uh, Dawood's nephew in a sting in Barcelona, he had a business card for this very same um, uh, weapons operation out of Kurdistan that I think he was going to use to support our undercover op. Um, that part of the world is very incestuous. So his name is Sohal Kaskar, Dawood's nephew. His partner uh, in that deal 
turned out to be a Russian asset who was going back and, and trying to record our undercovers and report back to Mother Russia. So, you know, none of this stuff's in a vacuum. When you get yep. to a certain level of criminality, it's all interrelated. It's six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. And uh, that's why I do think we have to treat them as criminal networks, because that's what they are. Well, at that level, it's more like two degrees of separation, right? Everybody knows somebody who knows the next, who knows, I mean, we're all, we're all technically now, they did research because of social media and the way people are connected. You were now 3.47 degrees of separation. You're only 3.47 degrees of separation from shaking Vladimir Putin's hand. That's all it's going to take. Yeah, you know, I, uh, so I, I, I tied, I think, every case I worked into into this one talk, right? <laughs> we have, oh, we have no need to have you on again, Zach. That's yeah, it. Okay, you're done. Have, and so, that's, so at one point, you know, I would try to, to map this out you know, like Russell Crowe in, in A Beautiful Mind, right? And I try to point out, like, everybody's interconnected. And I went and I'm working with phenomenal prosecutor, Ed Kim, one of the best prosecutors I ever worked with. I love the guy, Southern District of New York. And he throws his hands up in the air and he goes, well, Zach, if you had a, your way, we would just have one big massive global con- con- conspiracy we would charge, you know, in-rate cocaine trafficking. And I, I laughed and I looked at him and I said, Ed, my brother, you're finally starting to get it. My Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the problem? <laughs> hey, final test though. Before we go, Murph, you got to repeat back all the names Zach mentioned. Oh, you kidding? <laughs> I can't even pronounce Zach's last name. No, now I get to take charge for a second. That is not the test. The test is my mother, God rest her soul, was an amazing teacher. And the bonus question in grade school for every student she taught was spells Zaharia Shevitz. <laughs> Z A C H. That's good. Z H I. So uh, Murph, it's just like I would say when I'd get on the stand, they'd ask me to say my whole name. I'd say it's a Harry Shevitz, but I'd turn to the judge and I'd say, you know, uh, please, Your Honor, feel feel free to just use Zach. And they'd say thank you. And the defense attorney would go to question me and he'd say, uh, Mr. Zach. And I'd say, I prefer if you use my whole name. It's a Harry Shevitz. <laughs> Oh, stir in that pot, brother. Stir in that it. pot. The guy it. that used to work for me a long time ago, a few years ago, he would come in. His name was Shariar Begi. And it was, he was Persian. And so we figured – so it, through the process of stuff – and there used to be stuff that came out of uh, InQtel. It was classified at the time, but it was language derivation. But you could t- plug a name into it and it would give you the full name. So Shariar Begi is actually Golan Riza Khan Mohammed Begi. So we you. tried to – <laughs> we tried to fit that onto an ID tag. And said, we said, he said, just call me Baba. Just so we started calling him Bob. So you're Zach. He's Bob. You know. uh, this is this has been fantastic, Zach. I know I know we're being a pain in the butt to you. Uh, can't thank you enough for just. I didn't know anything about this case. I've done some research on it before you came on today, and it's it's just so eye opening for our listeners there. Just Google Project Cassandra and read some of the articles that are out there on this thing. It's it's just eye-opening. It shows you how bad politics can be when it comes to trying to protect Americans, regardless of what you know party you support. It goes on on both parties. Well, uh, here's my selfish plug. I've got a pilot being written right now. We're going to have to ask you about that. Yep. It'll be out there at some point, and hopefully I have a uh, an audience waiting to, to give it some steam. So. Well, God brother, bless when you the time comes. For what you do. Thanks for having me well, on. They're going to have to simplify the names for Netflix or something, pal, because it's going to be like, what was that I, name again? How much yeah, easier yeah. do you get than El Turco and Taliban? That's it's it. <laughs> Two characters. That's it. Hey, and Colombia's Flacco and Gordo. That's it's it, so easy brother. to kind of follow those people. But when when the time comes, we will promote your show as as strongly as we possibly can. Hey, well, oh, I know it. 
don't you can't bury the lead like that. You say you're developing. How far how far down the road are you on developing the pilot? Where are we at with it? Uh, no, we're we're working with some folks. We have literally uh, the the pilot's being written right now, and then at that point, um, you know, you need a little luck. But I think it's going to be great. We've we we've, we've put a team together, and uh, and hopefully hopefully we're working on you know in six months from now we're working on really putting it together and uh, and and getting it written. Here's the way you sell it. It's like to Netflix. You go. It's like Narcos, but for the Middle East. No, literally, we call it we call it Narcos with a terrorism slant. I mean, see here, here Murph. Here's my 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 tribute to you, brother. I mean, for maybe for what I did, I liked it more than most. There's nothing better. Narcos, the first two seasons, and I like the Mexico too, but the first two seasons, especially, were were just phenomenal. And I've had a lot of people tell me that. I think there's still a huge appetite for that stuff if you can really do it right. And I think part of what intrigues people is that it's real you know nothing better than a real story and i I still think fact is you know more interesting than fiction uh i'll leave the last funny story because it's from murph himself murph taught me the ropes in this media business and uh it was incredibly incredibly good to me a little bit of a mentor on that front and so me and my partner meeting him with him one day and my partner sonu awesome guy and he says uh loves murph and he says murph tell me man how does this stuff really work like how true to life is it? Murph says, I don't know if you remember this, Murph. He says, well, well, Sony, the first, I won't do your accent, brother, but he says that Sony, <laughs> he says, uh, Sony, the first 33% is real to life, exactly 100% how it happened. And the next 33%, I mean, it's, it's basically true. They sex it up a little bit for Hollywood, but it's basically um, what really happened just with a, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of freedom to tell the story. And then he doesn't say anything else, and we're kind of just sitting there. And Sony says, "All right, well, what about the last third? And Murph says, "Oh, that's all bullshit." <laughs> <laughs> hey, just for the record, I don't have an accent. I don't know what to tell you. Speaking of bullshit, we're we're rewatching Narcos right now, so we're into season two, getting ready to go to episode three. And if you want to talk about some bullshit that's here, it's like Murph never got kidnapped. Connie never went back to the – and I felt so bad for you because Connie took the kid and went back to the United States. And you get yeah. in trouble and you beat the shit out of a couple guys in, in the airport. Yeah, well, and the no one rec- Murph always told us, you know, what was the cat's name? Fluffy? Fluffy died old age. Puff. Didn't, Puff. 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 Right? Yep. Right, brother? Puff died old age. Wasn't left on your doorstep. That's right. <laughs> Great writers in Hollywood. Amen. Amen. Hey, but one thing that is true is that um, Javier was basically nailing everything that moved, right? Well, you know what? I got I got to take up for the guy. He was not dating communists, informants, or hookers, but, but every other woman in Columbia was fair game. Murph, Murph, what did I what did I say earlier, brother? Not my story to tell. <laughs> I might have been a witness to some of this. Firm will deny, Senator. So, well, uh, you know what? But to give Javier a shout out, I mean, one of his girlfriends was a former Miss Columbia. They were just, you know, he was a single man and he just had girlfriends. That's all. I had this awesome agent, Kyle Brandon, work for me. In, uh, more funny sayings than anyone I ever met. He's from Alabama, good old boy. And uh, every every saying when anything was maybe not done exactly like you're supposed to do it, it would all start like this. Well, boss. I was sitting in my hotel room reading my Bible, <laughs> and lo and behold, the informant just shows up with a hundred thousand dollars. How every memo starts when you fucked up. It says, "Dear Carl, nobody was more surprised than me." <laughs> <That's> exactly. <right. laughs> 
Hey, this has been a great oh having God. you back, Zach. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Like I started off, it's just like talking to two old friends. So thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Hopefully I see you here both face-to-face real soon. In, well, in dude, you keep saying that. We just need to go over and hit Delirium Tremens over in Leesburg. Knock back Done. a couple. Done. I'll right. text you later today, brother. And, you- and Murph, whenever you're going to be up here or vice versa, I need to see your face, my man. Sounds good, But brother. you got to search him first because he's only going to have ginger ale, which means he's the snitch. He's wearing the wire. So. Well, somebody's got to drive your drunk ass. I was about to say, that's called a designated driver, man. Glasses <laughs> half full, brother. Okay. I'm on board. Well, first of all, this is us saluting you again. Great work. Good luck on the pilot. Um, you got to get us, though, some cameo roles in there. We, we need to be shooting an episode of the pilot with you on the podcast. Um, you know, so, but we'll work that out later. Our fee is reasonable. Done. Okay, you guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Yeah, you're Murph. I were Murph was just saying, can if I drank, can you imagine how bad this was going to be? It's kind of like <laughs> just even trying to do the introduction and get all these names right, you know. But, oh. uh, man, what I mean, again, I love this kind of stuff because it does it shows you the creativity, right? Because DEA doesn't have the same number of special agents that FBI has, right. you know, it's a numbers game, right? So when you've got fewer numbers, you've got to think differently you have to act smarter about what you do and you have to get really creative how can we get to the same person you know with less resources less time so i thought this whole thing with what they did with Mossad, going after terrorism financing you know and going after between hezbollah between hamas uh, uh palestinian islamic jihad uh fatah you've got all of these terrorist groups that are getting money you know mm-hmm. that's what that's the oil the grease that runs the terrorist engines is you got to have money to do this. So my hats off, you know, and salute to you guys for uh, disrupting that. That's And that's what I love about this. The fact that, you know, I've said it before, DEA is horrible at marketing itself. Um, it, it, it has this stigma that you can't talk about anything in DEA, that it's got to remain secret. Um, but it just, that's why I like bringing these interviews on here because it shows you the reach that DEA has. It has the largest, federal law enforcement footprint outside the United States of any federal U.S. law enforcement agency, including the Bureau. I mean, it used to be that the Bureau only put two agents in different countries around the world, but not nearly as many countries as DEA has. Um, and it's not a competition. It's, I'm not saying anything bad about the Bureau here. I'm, I'm bragging on DEA, the ability to not say no to an investigation. They'll take on a challenge. If it doesn't go well, well, you take one on the chin, but you don't not take the challenge because you're afraid of failing. That's what other agencies do, right? And DEA over and over and over again delivers, shocks people all the way up to the White House at the capability. So all you folks, Zach, and everybody that worked on this case, uh, man, so proud of what you did. And don't don't forget, folks, Zach and his team – they went after uh, the Lord of War, Yuri Orloff. Oh no, that was that was the movie. They went after the real Lord of War, Victor Boot, and they got <laughs> yep. him. Where many others have tried, including the Bureau, including the MI6, you know, and the other folks, they could not get him. And who got him? Zach and his crew, Operation Relentless. So again, hats off uh, and a salute to you guys. So anyway, we hope you guys enjoyed that podcast. If you did, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, and with Spotify, you can leave comments. So leave us some comments. Let 
us know what you want. Also, uh, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's our website where we've got pictures and books and all of that good stuff there. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Make sure you go to Facebook and type in Game of Crimes fans. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, rules with the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. And as we said, this is where we get ideas for everything from Patreon to our guests on this show come from a lot from you guys inside that group. So this is us thanking you. But hey, look, where you got to be, Murph. And I know you're there because we just recorded an episode. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Here, our latest one, You Can't Make This Shit Up, Case of the Month coming up. We've got 911, What's Your Emergency? We've got um, our Q&A, our Narcometer review. And then for you folks at our highest level, um, um, our Guardians of the Realm, I mean, our Warden of the Throne. So we go uh, Evil is Coming, uh, Guardians of the Realm, and then Warden of the Throne. Those folks at Warden of the Throne will do some exclusive stuff just for you, messages and and our thoughts that we don't give anywhere else other than you folks. So come on over and find out what all the hubbub's about, bub. Absolutely. And there's even on Patreon, we'll talk about um, additional information about some of our guests. We'll give you insights as to who's coming along. We don't do that on the regular podcast because we want it to be a surprise. But because you support us, on Patreon, we're going to give you a lot more information over there. So come and try us out over there. If you don't like it, well, that's okay. You know, we can have differences of opinion, but just give us a shot and see what you think. Give us a shot. Give, give us a try. Just once, just once, and then you'll enjoy it. I'm telling you. It's my yeah. bad Christopher Walken impression. You know, yeah, and, it, and it was. It was very bad. <laughs> very bad. I <laughs> preface it wasn't as bad as Miami Vice, though, Murph. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I'll never live that one down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that 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 one is one for the ages. Well, hey guys, uh, and if you want to know what that reference is to, go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Well, hey, yep. thus bringeth an end to one of our latest episodes. But again, we thank you guys for playing along with us and for being players in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. <laughs> <laughs>